we spoke, or I spoke, on the topic of the Reconquista of Spain. And this is the first of three, you might say, acts in a play involving the church's efforts, struggling for the truth, struggling for um, the cause of Christ under very difficult circumstances. And so last night we covered the reconquering, the Reconquista, of the Iberian Peninsula that had been lost to the Muslims, the Moors in Spain, for over 700 years. And I condensed 700 years worth of history into 45 minutes, if you can believe that. But we looked at the way in which the valiant Catholic spirit of conquering, not for the sake of conquering, but for the sake of spreading the truth about Jesus and the gospel, and how that eventually was crowned with success when King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, Isabella la Católica, they eventually were successful in uniting not only their two kingdoms, the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, but also a number of other Spanish kingdoms, so they were able to finally move, push out the Moors, and restore the Catholic faith in its former glory in Spain. Now that led to a, an historical discussion about Christopher Columbus and the role that he played. And one little tidbit that you'll remember from last night that I'll mention for the sake of those who weren't here last night was God's providence at work in the way poor Columbus tried and tried and tried to get the king and queen to listen to his project, his plan to sail across the Atlantic Ocean and thereby find, or so he thought anyway, that they would find the routes into the Indies and into China. They wanted to open new trade routes. He thought they could go that way instead of going all the way around the other direction, which took forever to get there. And little did he realize that he would encounter two massive new continents that we know today as North and South America. And so as we discussed the efforts that Christopher Columbus undertook to try to get the king and queen to fund his mission, and repeatedly he was rebuffed and told no, and he was so worn out with his efforts to, to get their attention <coughs> that he went with his son back home. He was heading back home from Granada, where the king and the queen and their armies were encamped and forcing out the Muslims who had taken their last stand there, and he happened to stop at a, a friary, at a, at a convent um, of male religious for a meal and a place to stay for the evening. And the prior of this friary was asking him, so who are you and what do you do and where are you going? And he told his tale about how he was trying to get the king and queen to fund his expedition because he was going to bring great glory to Spain and plant the cross of Christ in the Indies. And it just so happens that this friar that he was speaking to over the dinner table was the queen's confessor. So when he told the story, the priest said, oh, well, maybe I should talk to the queen. And so he did. And that's what made everything work, because when she heard it from her confessor, then she summoned Columbus back, and he wound up getting the money to make his trip. So I offer that to you as just kind of a reminder of the way in which God's providence works in very unexpected ways. And uh, what are the odds that he would have bumped into by accident the confessor of the Queen of Spain? Now we're going to look at the next chapter in this drama, which has to do with the apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe 
1531. And of course, the miraculous tilma that she left for all of us to see even till this very day. Those of you who listen to my radio program will remember, if you were listening at that time, that on the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the 12th of December, just a couple of days ago, I spent some time discoursing about that miracle and what was going on. So I apologize in advance if you were listening when I said all that, because I'm going to say it all again. And uh, I want to give you uh, a, a real sense of what happened there, why this is such a big deal, and what were the obstacles in the way of the Catholic faith at that time. So just a little bit of background here. Uh, by all historical records, including some that survived from the Aztecs themselves, uh, the Aztecs, they were performing human sacrifice on a scale unlike anything that we've seen anywhere else. Uh, on average, uh, the records indicate that as many as 50,000 human sacrifices were performed every year. There was one in which upwards of 80,000 people over the space of maybe five or six days, because it took that long for this to happen, about 80,000 people in one fell swoop were, were sacrificed by the Aztecs. And they had various gods that they were trying to placate, the sun god, the moon god. They had a hummingbird wizard god whose name is unpronounceable, at least to me, so I won't try to pronounce it for you. But these false gods, as the early church fathers say, were demons. And if you read the accounts of the early church fathers and how they explained the pagan divinities of their era and before, they said these are demons who are being worshipped by the people because they didn't know, they, they were ignorant. And a sure sign of diabolical activity is where innocence and especially human life is demanded as a sacrifice. So whatever it was that was motivating the Aztec Indians, they certainly believed that to placate their gods, they needed to murder these people, sacrifice them. And I don't want to give you indigestion, but I will just mention in passing that the method was very simple. The victim would be brought up the steps of the pyramid, which was in the center of the, of the then city, uh, Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City. It was a city built on a, an island in the middle of Lake Texcoco. The lake is dried up, and Mexico City is built on this lake bed which is one reason why Mexico City, even to this day, has many problems with settling, and buildings will settle and move. In fact, the older Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe suffered the same problems. You, if you saw it 30 years ago, you would have seen it tilted at, a, at an angle because of the settling. But the significance of this lake is that the city that they built ingeniously on the island in the middle of this lake was virtually impregnable because nobody could easily get to it. And you, you, you certainly couldn't march an army up to the city because you had to go through water. So there were very narrow causeways that went from the city itself across the lake to the other side where the shore was. And the causeways were intentionally narrow to prevent large bodies of, of warriors to come. And so the city was very defensible. And we'll, get, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But in the middle of this city, Tenochtitlan, there was a sacrificial pyramid temple, and the victims would be led one by one up the steps to the very pinnacle on which there was an altar, and the Aztec priest would plunge a, typically an obsidian dagger into the heart of the person who was alive and awake and, and rip the heart of the person out. 
and that heart would be offered in sacrifice to these false gods, one after the other after the other. If you want to see a Hollywood depiction of this, see the movie Apocalypto. And in that movie, you'll see the way it very likely looked and the terrible plight of these victims who were simply captured in war. In some cases, it was not even a battle or a war. The Aztecs would go out in search of more sacrifice and they would capture people, especially children. They loved to sacrifice children. Uh, they referred to the beating hearts of their victims that were taken out of, of their living bodies as the warm bread sacrificed to the gods. Uh, records indicate that one out of every five children in the general region of central Mexico met his or her end through being sacrificed by the Aztecs. So I can't emphasize enough how horrifying this was to the Spaniards when they arrived. Hernan Cortez, as you know, he came with a small group of Spanish soldiers, no more than 500 of them. He had a couple of small cannons, they had armor, they had some bows, or crossbows rather, and lances, some horses, but not much more than that. And that was in the face of a super tribe, the Aztecs, who had literally hundreds of thousands of warriors armed with spears and bows and arrows, knives, etc. So when Cortes landed first in Yucatan, off the Yucatan Peninsula, eventually they would find themselves in uh, what is now Veracruz on the eastern side of Mexico. The local Indians that they began to meet were telling them about this race of Indians, this tribe of Indians in the interior that were bloodthirsty, and they told them about the human sacrifice and all of this. So Cortez decided that he would confront them with his small group of soldiers. And before he actually marched into the interior, he told his men that you can go home if you want to, but those of you who come with me, we're going to we're going to go and confront this tribe. And he actually scuttled his ships so that those who decided to stay, himself included, would not have any means of turning back if things got very difficult. So that has always struck me as an incredible, perhaps foolhardy, but very incredible way of demonstrating your conviction and your commitment to your cause by making sure that there's no way to turn back. Um, the Various tribes that were in uh, alliances with the Aztec Indians, they fought on behalf of the Aztecs as the, as the Spaniards were making their way to what is now Mexico City. And when Cortez got there, at first, um, he was greeted with a kind of wary um, acceptance on the part of uh, Montezuma and the chiefs of, of the Aztecs because they were not entirely sure who or what he was. And you probably have heard the, the word Quetzalcoatl, which is a, uh, an anglicized version of the Nahuatl word for a feathered serpent god that they worshiped. This is one of their many gods. And so when the Spanish arrived with their metal helmets that had ostrich feathers, the plumes above them, and beards, and dressed in very odd ways with the uniforms that they had, they were not entirely sure whether or not this might be, Cortez himself, might be Quetzalcoatl coming to visit them. So the, the idea was to allow them to come in 
and parlay with them and talk with them and figure out, are these men? Are these gods? What are these? What are their weaknesses? And little by little, um, the, the situation deteriorated. And I, I can't get into all the specific details of the many, many moments of duress along the way, but the final confrontation was a massive battle between the Spaniards and the Aztecs that culminated in the defeat of the Aztecs. <clears throat> now, one of the martial stories that I found particularly interesting was that because of the way the city had been built on this, lay, on this um, island in the middle of the city, it was difficult to approach, so Cortez decided to build boats. And the few cannons that he had, he mounted on these boats, and then he just sailed the boats right up to the edge of the city, and he could bombard the buildings, they could shoot their arrows, and they were able to capture Tenochtitlan, and they immediately tore down the pagan altars, and they stopped the pagan sacrifices of uh, pulling the hearts out of people. He claimed the land for the Spanish crown and for Jesus Christ. This was in March of 1519. Uh, he had a mistress. Uh, her name was uh, La Malinche, and she learned Spanish. She became the mother of his illegitimate son, Martin. But because she knew the Nahuatl language spoken by the Aztecs, she also knew uh, the Chontal language of the Mayans, who were another race, another tribe of Indians not far away. She was able to act as a, um, an interpreter for him. And so he was able to gain the confidence of many of the tribes in the area, who were very happy, as you might imagine, that they had put an end to the human sacrifice. So these other tribes could breathe easy now, knowing that they would not be among the next 50,000 uh, victims to be sacrificed. Now, the, the story is fraught with many different um, injustices. It's certainly not the case that the Spaniards were as pure as the wind-driven snow. They were not um, there entirely for noble reasons. Um, Cortez, of course, he wanted to rise in stature and fame and in money, and so he did. Uh, but along the way, in addition to the sometimes bad things that were done by the Spaniards, there were very many good things that were done, including putting an end to human sacrifice, to slavery, ritual torture, and the things that they found there. I had mentioned this on the program in passing. I'll just touch upon it briefly. Uh, I recall giving a talk about the, um, the, the Jesuit priests who came to evangelize in what is now northern New York State in southern Canada. And you all have heard of the North American martyrs, I'm sure, Father John de Brebeuf and his companions who were martyred by the Indians. Now, this was, the, the Iroquois Indians were not a tribe under, under themselves. It was the name of a federation of tribes, a confederation of tribes. And so this, this group of very savage, warlike indigenous peoples there, they were astonished that these black robes, as they were called, would come and live in their, their cities, or their towns rather, they would learn the language, they would eat their food, they would evangelize them little by little. One of the sad details of the story of the North American martyrs is that the priests had a black chest, like you might see on a sailing ship that would come from Europe, and in that chest had all of their 
uh, sacred vessels for mass. So the ciborium, the chalice, the, the altar linens, the vestments, the crucifix, things of that nature. And the local people, the local Indians were convinced, and, and actually they were convinced by their shamans, by their um, religious leaders, that that box was actually a box that held the devil in it. And so they were telling the Indians that these people, when they open this box and they bring out all these things to do their ceremony, that they're trying to bring the devils into our community. And of course, that was very frightening for the people. And one of the things that was striking about the, the black robes, the Jesuit priests, which we can see examples of or parallels of in the friars, the Franciscan friars, the Dominican friars who came to Mexico to evangelize the people was that they loved the people. And if you can, if you consider the, the fact that in, in the 16th, 17th, 17th century, when the Jesuits were evangelizing the Iroquois and the Algonquins and the various Indian groups that were there, there were also Protestant missionaries who were there as well. And one of the striking features of, of that was that the Protestants didn't really like the Indians. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they hated them, but as evidence of their antipathy toward the Indians was they never lived with them. They wanted the Indians to learn French if they were Huguenots, or they wanted them to learn English if they were English. So rather than live with the Indians and learn their language and learn how to communicate to them, they stayed at a distance and they tried to Europeanize the Indians. Now, they were successful to some extent, but the Jesuits were far more successful because they loved the people and they lived with them. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the Protestant missionaries didn't necessarily love the Indians with a love of God, like, you know, I, the way you might love somebody who's really mean to you, but the, the Jesuits loved them so much so that even when they were persecuted for their efforts and tortured and eventually killed in every case, uh, the Indians marveled that these priests were so dedicated to them that they loved them so much that they were willing to sacrifice their lives to be among them, knowing that it was a death sentence because eventually they would all be killed. And I won't describe to you the terrible ways in which they were tortured before their deaths. And it was a long and agonizing process that took years. I mean, it wasn't as though this was all done at once. If I ever am invited back by the sisters to give a talk on the North American martyrs, then you'll hear the specifics of that, but I won't mention it to you right now. But the same is true when it comes to the Spanish missionaries who came to the United or to Mexico, because they too loved the people and they wanted to bring the love of Jesus to them. They wanted them not only to get away from the human sacrifice and the barbarity and the torture and all the other things that happened. And this, by the way, is not to suggest that terrible things were not happening in Europe. They were. There were terrible things going on in Europe. So this is not an exoneration of Europe or Europeans. They had their own set of problems, but it was a different set of problems. And so by bringing the gospel to the new world, at least the missionaries who gave up their lives, and they take, for example, um, St. Junipero Serra. He had a very comfortable life in Spain. He was a professor of theology. He was well-respected. He had you know, all the amenities that life in Europe at that time would afford him. 
decent food, place to sleep. There was nobody that was going to kill him. So he, as with the other missionaries, they gave that up. They gave up the life, even if it was not just giving up the life of marriage and children and working and making money. To, they gave the, all that up to become priests and religious. But they also gave up the comfortable life of a priest and religious in Europe to come to a wild and unknown place where the danger of death was always and everywhere around them. And they did so because they loved the people. Now, we can draw conclusions, perhaps, to our own era. I mean, if you look around on Twitter, for example, or CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or Facebook. I mean, there are many ways that you can see this. There are a lot of people out there who are very hostile to what we believe to be true. Wouldn't you agree with that? You know, we believe in the message of Jesus Christ. That's not a popular thing nowadays. And whether it's verbal violence or even physical violence, uh, people who pop their heads up and try to speak the truth in love very often get beaten down in our culture. So they aren't offering human sacrifice yet, although we could, we could say that abortion is in a certain sense a wholly uh, sub subsidized version of human sacrifice at the altar of Planned Parenthood. But nonetheless, even though the details may not be exactly the same, the climate is very much the same, I would argue. And we can see in our study of the missionaries in the 16th century in Mexico, some similarities to what we experience here in this country right now. And being in an environment that is, in many respects, hostile to the message that we're trying to bring requires us to stop and ask the question, how do you speak to a hostile culture in a language that it will understand and with not mere words but also actions that are translatable into meaning that our culture can understand? Well, I think one of the lessons we can learn from these missionaries is the fact that they loved the people. They didn't hate them. They disagreed with them, and they were violently persecuted for their beliefs, but they loved them, and they were willing to stay with them, to go among them, to learn their language, as I said. Now, how that translates specifically for you and for me, I think each case will be unique unto itself. But I personally, as I consider the heroic efforts on the part of for example, St. Junipero Serra and the others, I, I see in them a kind of inspiration for myself, and I hope for you as well, that each of us in our own way will be in a position to share the faith, sometimes even under duress. So what happened? Well, as you might imagine, the reception of the Catholic faith, Christianity, among those who had just recently been vanquished by the Spaniards was not terribly enthusiastic. They were not overjoyed at this new religion now that had come among them and talking about the Prince of Peace, Jesus, and all that. They, they, they didn't get into it. And the, the converts were relatively few and far between, despite the heroic efforts on the part of the missionaries. They just, they were not getting into it. So along comes the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, to a man named St. Juan Diego. Now, his name, and I will do my best to pronounce it in my best Nahuatl accent, which is nil, Kawadalatawak uh, was his... Now, he probably would not have answered to that name if I had said it, because I would have said it so <laughs> poorly. But however it would have been said, 
in the Nahuatl language, uh, it means the eagle who speaks. That's, that was uh, St. Juan Diego's given name. He lived from 1474 to 1548, and he was canonized in 2002, as you know, by Pope John Paul II. And he was the first indigenous saint from the Americas. And what happened to him is described in a document known as the Nikan Mopohua, uh, was published first in the Nahuatl language in 1649, and it was the contemporary account, or near-contemporary account, because he had died some hundred years before that, but it was the near-contemporary account of the deeds of St. Juan Diego, what happened when the apparitions took place. So we have not only a smattering of contemporary accounts that were written at the time of the apparition, but we also have a more historical scholarly account basing upon the records that were available at the time. So I'll share with you some of the, the basic details of the story. So he was uh, a fairly new Catholic at this time, and he would walk many days from his home to the Franciscan mission station at Tlaute Loco, Talte Lolco, excuse me, not Loco, but Lolco. Uh, and he would go for catechism classes, and he would also go to Mass and uh, help out with the priests and whatnot. And his route would take him by a hill known in that language as Tepeyac. Now, imagine if you've been in Mexico City, perhaps you've seen it, but it doesn't look today anything like it did then, because now it's shrouded with smog, and there's such a massive metropolis, it's difficult to imagine what this would have looked like then. But this was in the foothills of the majestic mountains, uh, Popocatepetl, which is the main volcano. It's snow-capped most of the year and erupts, lately it erupts uh, with some regularity. Well, this was wild country. This was uh, steep mountains and foothills of the mountains, and it was in those foothills where he lived. And so in December, the first apparition took place December of 9th, 1531, he was making his typical journey from where he lived to the, the Franciscan mission to do his, you know, go to mass and such. And at dawn, he was passing by this hill. And he encountered this beautiful woman, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who told him, in his language, she said, I would like you to go into the city down below. I would like you to go to the bishop and request to him, or tell him that I am requesting that he build a church, a chapel, on this site where we're standing right now. And she says, I'd like him to do this in my honor so that uh, I can be an intercessor to relieve the distress of everybody here who calls for her help in their time of need. So he thought, okay, I'll try. So he went down to the bishop's residence in the city, uh, Bishop uh, Juan Sumarraga, and he went and said, I'd like to tell the bishop a message that I've received, and the servant said, well, come back another day because the bishop doesn't have time to see you right now. So he came back another day. The bishop did see him, and he told him what the woman had said, and so the bishop said, come back again. I need time to think about what you're telling me, which might have been his way of brushing off Juan Diego. I don't know but he maybe thought that Juan Diego would not come back. But uh, the same day as, as Juan Diego is returning home, he again passes by Tepeyac Hill, and he again encounters the Blessed Virgin Mary, and he told her that he was not, he was not successful in his effort to get the bishop to do this. So he said that he, in, in the, disc, the, the discussion, the interchange between Our Lady 
and St. Juan Diego is rather beautiful and poignant. He says that he couldn't do it because he's just a tail, just a wing, just a man of no importance, using, using terms that the people would have understood, just little insignificant thing. I'm a leaf, I'm a tail, I'm nothing. And the, the Blessed Virgin Mary said, no, I have great need of you to do this. I'm your mother. And so she said, go back and talk to the bishop. So Juan Diego agreed to do this. And he did it on the morning of Sunday, December 10th. He found the bishop more compliant. The bishop asked for a sign to provide uh, evidence that this was really something coming from heaven. Now, one of the journeys that Juan Diego made into, into Mexico City to speak to the bishop involved him taking a different route because he didn't want to see this lady again because she kept appearing to him. And he thought, all right, well, every time I go that way by that hill, she shows up. So I'm going to go this way around this hill over here. And she showed up over there. So she was not going to let him off the hook. The third apparition uh, took place on December 11th, and as uh, he returned, he encountered the, the Blessed Virgin Mary this time, and he relayed the bishop's request for a sign. So, um, on the fourth apparition, this was early on Tuesday, December the 12th, he was going to tend to his uncle who was very ill, and this is when the fourth apparition took place. And this is when he decided to take a slightly different route because he figured, I'm busy right now, okay? I've got to take care of my uncle. So he went the different direction, and that's where Our Lady met him. And uh, so this is when, this day, when she said, No estoy yo aquí, que soy tu madre. Am I not here who am your mother? And she assured him that everything was going to be okay, and that there would be a sign, and all he would need to do is to climb a little further up there, and he would find some roses. So he went up there, and he found these roses that were fully in bloom, and this, of course, is in near mid-December, cold, very likely snow on the ground. We don't know with certitude if there was snow on the ground that day, but certainly it was impossible that these beautiful roses would be blooming in that cold weather on the slopes of uh, these foothills, so he gathered a bunch of these roses from this rose bush that was miraculously there. He put them in the front of his tilma, which is a, it was a, a working garment. It was a poncho made of woven plant fibers. It would last maybe four or five years before it would fall apart because it wasn't made out of sturdy material. And in this uh, long front flap, which came down to the feet, you'd be able to hold the end of it or the hem of it up, and then you could stack firewood, or you could put uh, a small animal, or you could carry whatever, uh, including roses. So he put all the roses that he had picked in the front of his tilma, he held it up to here, and he went back down into the city, and he, um, he showed the bishop by opening this up, and the roses fell to the floor and that in itself was quite an amazing thing and the bishop i'm sure was surprised by that but more surprising yet was the image of our lady who is now as you all know on the tilma itself and one of the amazing well one of the many amazing things about this is that the the tools of science have been brought to bear to discover whether or not this image was painted is there dye, some sort of pigment in the fiber? Was there a, a tracing beneath it that was used, as artists often do, they'll trace something in pencil and then they'll paint over that. And with all of our 
scientific instrumentation, we're not able to discover any plausible explanation, naturally speaking, for how this image got onto these plant fibers. There's no way to explain it. It's just there. And furthermore, as I discussed on the show the other day, the, the people, of course, in those days, they didn't understand about how things like exposing um, something as fragile as that tilma to oxygen might not destroy it over time. I use the example on the show about acid-free paper. And if you have any books in your library at home that were printed before, say, 1970, 1975, you'll notice more often than not that the pages have become yellow and brittle. It was because it was only then, around that time, that publishers got wise to the fact that after so many years of being exposed to air, the pages would get brittle and dry and they would crack and break. So that's when they made the switch to what's called acid-free paper. And the reason we have acid-free paper is so that the books will last indefinitely now. They didn't know that. They didn't have any concept of those things. They didn't realize that soot from candles and direct sunlight and people touching the tilma as they did, uh, countless people handled it. And all of these things that would otherwise deteriorate and eventually destroy an artifact like that had no effect on it whatsoever. And today, if you go to Mexico City, as many of you, I'm sure, have been, you can see the tilma. It's as bright and beautiful today as it was nearly 500 years ago. And that's another thing that science has not been able to account for. How did the image get there? We don't know. Uh, well, we know. But how did the image get there? The scientists haven't been able to prove how. And the, the vivid quality, the brightness of the colors, how is it that they're still so bright today after all these centuries? They don't know. There was an incident that took place in which the, uh, some dynamite was placed in the flower arrangement on the altar that was directly beneath where the tilma was hanging in the old basilica, and enemies of the church wanted to destroy the image, and when the bomb went off, everything around it was destroyed, the altar was destroyed, the huge iron crucifix, which is still there in the basilica, it's in a glass case, if you ever go you can see it, it's, it's um, charred and bent, and it almost appears as though at the moment the blast took place that maybe the crucifix sort of bent over and shielded the image from the, the effects of the blast, and the analogy that comes to my mind is like the, um, the soldier during wartime when an, an enemy hand grenade is thrown into the foxhole and the soldier jumps on it and absorbs the blast with his own body to save his, his fellow soldiers. That was the analogy that came to my mind when I first became aware of this. Because when you look at the cross, you know, the way it's shaped and bent, it, it suggests something like that happened. Maybe, maybe not. But one thing we do know is that the tilma was completely untouched, completely as if nothing had ever happened. Now, in addition to some of the other inexplicable anomalies of the tilma, one that has always fascinated me is how only in recent decades have we discovered how the glint of light in the iris of the human eye, or animal eyes in general, is a reflection of what the person is seeing. So if you look at me, you might see a little glint of light in my eye. Well, if you were to magnify my eyes, you would see you you would see what I'm seeing. So all of you sitting here in front of me is what you would see. And what I would see if I magnified the little glint of light in your eyes, your iris, I would see me. And I would see the sanctuary of the chapel in which we're sitting right now. Nobody knew this. Nobody had any concept of that. And certainly nobody could actually see this until recent decades when our 
our scientific equipment and photography and lenses and things like that suddenly became able to do this. And one of the miraculous features of the tilma, in addition to the, all the other ones, is that when you zoom in to the eyes of the Virgin, you see people. You see an old man, bald, with a white beard, who's going like this. <laughs> you see other people who are standing there. Now, granted, their outlines are very, you know, very basic. It's not like you see features. You, you don't see features of the face or anything like that, except you do with the, the man who looks like Bishop Zumarraga. But you see a number, maybe six or seven people, children, uh, adults, who are also standing there. And what I argue is that this is a photographic image, or at least a reflective image, of what Our Lady was seeing when the image of her appeared on the tilma, which appeared, apparently, it appeared in that moment. It certainly wasn't there when Juan Diego put the roses in the tilma and carried them down into the city. And so he didn't see the image there, but when he unfolded it and the roses came out, that seems to be when the image was flashed on to the fabric. And so I would offer that as another reason to consider the miraculous nature of this tilma, because how do you explain that? They didn't even know about that then. So no artist could have put that there. No artist would even know to put that there. And yet when you zoom in and you see it, how do you explain that? I say that's another part of the miracle. Now, in conclusion, the miracle itself was augmented by the fact that Whereas before the apparition took place, there were just a smattering of converts that came into the Catholic Church before this, despite the great efforts on the part of the friars. But when Our Lady appeared in the form of an Aztec woman who is pregnant, you look at her, she's thick in the middle, so baby Jesus on the way. She's standing on a moon. She is resplendent with rays of sun all around her. And you can see the stars that are across her, um, her mantle. Um, it is said that this outfit that she was wearing was redolent of what a, a, a noble woman would have worn in the Aztec Empire. And I am not an expert on what the Aztecs wore, but that seems pretty reasonable to me that Our Lady would appear that way. And they call her La Morenita because she is dark-skinned, just like the people were there. And when they began to see this miraculous image, it was as if their ears were opened, their hearts were opened, and the message of Jesus Christ began to resonate with them. And within the next roughly decade or so, 11 million people accepted Jesus and became Catholic, were baptized. And that was the beginning of the Catholic faith, at least the beginning in earnest of the Catholic faith in Mexico from which the missionary activity that extended into where we are today in, in Alta California, it was from there that it really began to emanate upward to where we are now. And in my next talk, I will give you some really interesting and rich historical details of that drama involving St. Junipero Serra and the things that he did uh, following along what our Blessed Virgin Mary did in appearing to St. Juan Diego. And um, I thank you for your kind attention for this 
Amazing historical story. Thank you very much.